Hi, everyone. Oh, goodness. Hello. Welcome. We have today a wonderful guest. Oh, this is Planet Psycom. Sorry, we're very discombobulated this morning and very excited about our guest. Uh, Our guest is Dr. Monica Flio Moher, uh, and she's here from California. Uh, Well, not here, here. I'm just going to let her introduce herself and stop talking. Monica. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I'm excited to to have this conversation with y'all. Um, what do you want me to say about myself, Sarah? <laughs> oh, well, we we want to hear about your background and what you do, because I just said your mm-hmm. name and not actually anything else. Um, OK. And how well your background and, and what you do is going to be related to science communication. So. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Yeah. So I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. uh, And that is something that um, you will know if you meet me or if you know me, that is uh, one of the first things you'll know about me. I'm from Puerto Rico. Being Puerto Rican is one of my most important identities. Um, And I'm a neurobiologist by training. Um, Did my undergrad in biology, a PhD in neurobiology. But now I do science communication. Particularly, my work focuses on culturally relevant science communication, which means, you know, connecting science with people's cultures, identities, contacts through communication. Um, I don't have any formal training in communication. Um, so my path to what I do today was uh, certainly not straight. Um, and. Just I work with two nonprofits right now, one called Ciencia Puerto Rico and the other one called the Science Communication Lab. And that was formerly known as iBiology. Um, And I do many different things. I do multimedia production. I do community engagement, especially in Puerto Rico. I write about science. I also help scientists, particularly uh, write and communicate science. I train scientists in culturally relevant science communication. So I do many, many different things, but all of those really geared towards using science communication as a tool to promote equity and inclusion in, in science and in science communication. Wow. Um, I, I, I actually got a little stuck at the beginning of that and I, my mind kept thinking about, so you got, you got a bachelor's in neurobiology and in biology, in, in human bi- biology, in human biology, and a PhD. Yeah. Does that mean you skip the masters? Did you go straight to PhD? I did. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I I got a PhD in, in biomedical sciences broadly. It's very common that people go straight from undergrad to a PhD. Um, you know, some people do a master's degree, but it's not necessary for biomedical sciences PhDs. Oh, that's so, so interesting. Yeah, I did take a break in between my undergrad. I was a research lab technician for three years before going to grad school because I needed a break. That's what I did. Yeah. So, but yeah, I I I didn't do a master's, and that is not uncommon in biomedical sciences. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what other. Okay, so that's a total aside because, (laughs) as you can see, this is how this podcast goes. We start to talk about. (laughs) What we plan to talk about. And then Sarah gets distracted and off we go. 
I mean, yeah, this it's one of the perennial questions, right? Straight to PhD or master's in, in a lot of disciplines. Mm-hmm. So since we're but, going on background, <clears throat> uh, one thing I also didn't do a master's, I went straight from undergrad to a PhD yeah, me, program me in either. micro, but uh, I was looking in a little bit of background stuff and did a quick PubMed search. And um, I got really interested in uh, one of uh, the papers on cocaine sensitization. And so <laughs> went from working with rodents and really interesting brain stuff into SciComm. How did that transition go? Well, um, I, I really stumbled upon science communication. Uh, it wasn't something that I knew about when I went into my undergrad. And it wasn't something I even knew about when I started my PhD. Like I didn't know it was an academic discipline. I it, I didn't know that it was uh, a career path that I could follow. Um, but you know, as I said, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I did my undergrad there and it is not atypical for students who want to continue a career in research and do their PhDs to leave Puerto Rico. Like, I don't know what the numbers are, but a lot of us leave uh, to do, to pursue our PhDs, you know, for, for several reasons, like students have, you know, I'm not going to be humble here, but we have great students that have great research training. Um, You know, there's a huge interest from U.S. based universities because diversity, Um, you know, we check that box uh, for better or worse. Um, And, you know, especially if you're a a, a talented student, you're encouraged to to leave um, because there are, you know, there are are particular challenges of doing science in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, and so I, I left, um, I left when I finished my, my undergrad. Um, and as I mentioned, I was, I worked for three years as a lab technician before going into my PhD and, you know, besides going to get my training, one of the big motivations for me, uh, to leave was I wanted to go get training in some of the best universities in the world to come back, to go back to Puerto Rico um, and help address some of the challenges of doing science there. I really wanted to contribute to advancing science uh, in Puerto Rico. And so that motivation kind of, you know, is has stayed with me um, since then, but it, it really prompted me to look for opportunities to stay connected to, to the Puerto Rican scientific community and to find ways to contribute at the moment. This was, I left Puerto Rico in 2004. Um, and in that process, I realized that it would take me more than a decade to get back to Puerto Rico because especially back then I thought, well, I'm going to go back as a professor because I didn't know anything else I could do with a PhD. Um, And, you know, uh, I did three years as a research technician An average PhD in biomedical sciences takes six years. uh, And then you have to do a postdoc if you want to be a faculty. And, you know, that's more than a decade and I am not particularly patient. So I didn't want to wait. So I started kind of searching for like, how do I stay connected? And, you know, back then Facebook, Twitter, like all of these tools that we use to stay seamlessly connected with people anywhere in the world, 
they didn't exist or they were in, in their infancy. And so uh, in 2006, I met the founder of Ciencia Puerto Rico, which is one of the organizations that I work with at the moment. And, you know, he told me, I just created this website and he's a, he's a professor now at Yale, but back then he was a postdoc at Stanford university and he had modified a database he was using to keep track of his C elegance strain. So he used this like small nematode to do his research and you can create many different strains of that. And so you need to keep track of them. So he had a database to keep track of those. And he thought, well, if I can use this to keep track of worms, I can use it to keep track of people. Um, and so he asked an undergrad in his lab to modify that database uh, and created what was at that point, the, the first website of, of Ciencia Puerto Rico. Uh, and it was really, a, it was meant to be a community. It wasn't even an organization back then. It was a place where anyone with an interest with sci in science in Puerto Rico could uh, kind of self-identify and say, you know, this is where I am. This is what I do. And I want to connect with others with a similar interest. Um, he had just created that in 2006. And he told me, you know, he had this vision that by kind of bringing people with this common interest together, that could be a way to contribute to Puerto Rico. And so I was like, ah, this is what I've been looking for. Um, and he was looking for volunteers. I mean, he was doing this in, in a volunteer basis. And so it so happened that the very first project that I, I kind of took on was a science communication project. Um, you know, he, he had established a collaboration with El Nuevo Día, which is the newspaper of record in Puerto Rico, so that people in, in this growing community could write articles about science for the newspaper. Because one of the things, one of the many challenges in Puerto Rico, and this is not just in science communication, it also occurs in, in education, it's science is often presented with an outside lens. Uh, you know, it's not contextually relevant. It's you don't see local examples of, of science in the media and books and schools. And so he thought, well, you know, this is uh, something we can do relatively easily. We have a bunch of scientists who are interested in, in Puerto Rico, who can write from a Puerto Rican perspective, from a culturally relevant perspective. Um, and of course, the newspaper wants free content. <laughs> uh, and so we started doing that. And so I started writing for the newspaper because um, I've always loved writing. And of course, I love science. Uh, and then I started as, as that Pro project went along, I started helping other scientists. So I became an editor. Um, basically, I helped other scientists do that. And, and that really opened, uh, it, it really changed my path because I, for several reasons. First, like I realized like, oh, people do science communication. Like this is actually something people do. Um, and it, it, another way in which it changed my path is like it allowed me to really bring my whole self into science. Like after I had moved to to the U.S., like I had always been very proud to be a Puerto Rican scientist. And then when I moved to the U.S., to continue my training, I felt like I had to choose. I had to be either be like a scientist and that should have been my, like that needed to be my main identity. And I could be Puerto Rican outside of the lab, but I couldn't be both. 
Um, and, and, you know, that created an identity crisis for me. And, and science communication allowed me to kind of work through that identity crisis. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's how I got into science communication. Once I've realized this, this is something I can do and this is actually what I want to do. Uh, I started being more intentional about what other things I could learn about, like other uh, dimensions of science communication and finding kind of mentors and really going into into the field. But it was really by chance. So was that first one? Uh, was that the the piece of the, the first one that you did? The first piece that you wrote, was that the one on guinea worms? Yes. So guinea worms got you to a personal revelation. <laughs> I don't know how many people can say that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah. That I think that was one of my first. I don't know. I don't. I don't think that was the very first, but it was certainly one of my first pieces, and I published that in well, like two thousand and six. We'll have to link that in the Uh, show notes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know if I have a PDF of it that I can share, but I don't know if it's online anywhere. Um, Well, Patrick dug it up, it sounds like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Your your research skills are on point. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was I, I wrote this story about, you know, efforts to eradicate guinea worm. Um, And back it was a disease I knew nothing about until I wrote this article. And but it was the reason I wrote that was because the man who was leading those efforts back then, he's he he. Well, I don't know if he still lives, but he was Puerto Rican. Um, And so, you know, that's uh, one of the many ways in which we made, you know, a disease that is not in Puerto Rico relevant. Um, and I think one of my favorite things about that article is like, I, I started the story in a pretty gross way because it's like a very graphic depiction of like what it is to have this disease. Um, but you know, it's, for me, it was a way to like really try to get the reader to have empathy for what this would feel like and would be like. Um, so it's certainly, I have a, um, a lot of sentimental, I guess, attachment to that piece. Um, not because like back then I was like, oh, this is a way to start an article. But now I'm like, oh, I use storytelling <laughs> to like get people hooked and grossed out. <laughs> emotion. Fascinating. Yeah. Emotion. Yeah. It strikes me that your stumbling into science communication is less is like a directed stumble, right? Because the science communication part, just it just so happened that that was the project that he was mm-hmm. working on or that he wanted to work on. Um, but you also leveraged your networks, right? And, and your yeah. identity to get there. So it was sort of a directed stumbling? Yeah, I sort of, I would say, because I mean, I had, and I think the way that worked out is something that's been really consistent for me in my career. Like the, why I, I stumbled or why I started science communication was uh, very clear. Like I I've always had enormous clarity on, I want to contribute to the advancement of science in Puerto Rico. Like I've always had a strong desire and motivation to put science in service of of Puerto Rico. And that was the genesis of Mm -hmm. that. Like I was searching for something 
to do that. And that's something it so happened to be science communication. So and, and that's again, that's something that's been really consistent through my career, like why I do what I do. It's very consistent. I want to put science in service of Puerto Rico. I want to uh, improve equity and, and inclusion in in science and science communication. How I do that has changed um, along the way. And I assume it will continue to change. I think it's really interesting that you brought up the the time that you spent thinking about identities as things changed, because that's something Mm. that I'm seeing a lot on message boards and Facebook and Twitter are people who are in academia. And as you described, you know, you're going to do your PhD, your postdoc, you're going to go to a faculty position and you're going to become a professor of some flavor. And then there's a lot of people who are exiting academia and that comes with its own Mm -hmm. just panoply of struggles. Um, Yeah. Like, if you don't mind, I mean, you don't have to go into a whole bunch of personal detail, but how did that sort of play out moving into SciComm? Like, did SciComm provide sort of a intellectual haven that you could sort of pick up the buckets from point A and move to point B? Or how did that sort of go? Not to mm, get too personally good- deep necessarily, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind being vulnerable. Um, you know... Uh, for me, like science communication was something that I was doing. I was always doing it on the side um, because, you know, my PhD had nothing to do with it. Stumbling um, becomes more directed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's going to be a um, so memoir would, chapter. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> directed stumbling. I think <laughs> that's memoir. the title uh, of our <laughs> podcast today. There you go. There you go. Um, I... You know, I was doing this on the side and for me, because it's this is something that was fulfilling some, you know, like a deeply personal desire, something that's really important to me. You know, I never questioned kind of like, oh, should I be doing this? I mean, I was questioned if I should be doing it, but Mm -hmm. it was not for me. It was like, yeah, like this is something I got to do and I got to figure out how to do it on the side. Um, I think. And, you know, there were challenges, you know, like, I, I don't know, I was like in my fourth year of my PhD and at least in biomedical sciences, you know, you have a dissertation advisory committee that you should meet with every year, at least um, to kind of talk about your progress and things you may be struggling with and whatnot. And at that point, you know, I think the fourth year of a PhD, a lot of people struggle. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's, a, it's an ex- it is I mean, really an existential, uh, existential yeah. time when you're really Truth. like, should yeah. I be here? Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What am I doing? Nothing's working, yep. you know? Uh, and so, you know, I was, I was, my, my experiments weren't working. I was not happy. Uh, And, you know, and I'll admit it, I was not focused because at that point I knew that I did not want to stay in research and, and continue in academia, at least not in the traditional sense. Um, I was like, you know, I would rather be doing all this science communication and engagement stuff. Um, And I wasn't focused. Uh, And, and I didn't, you know, I didn't pay as much attention as to my research as I should have. So all things and my relationship with my advisor wasn't great uh, at that point. And so all those things combined to I wasn't doing good. <laughs> and my dissertation advisory committee flat out asked me if I wanted to quit the Ph.D., mm. 
is they were like, well, you know, things are not great. You're not happy and you don't need a PhD to do whatever it is that you want to do. Right. Like I was, I was upfront about not wanting to be uh, in academic research and because I'm just, that's just the way I am. I am upfront. Maybe in retrospective, I shouldn't have been upfront. Um, but, you know, they were like, do you want to quit? And I was like, mm, I'm not a quitter. No, I don't want to quit. But that, you know, that created a whole set of challenges because I was like, should I quit? And I looked into quitting. I fortunately, I have mentors that kept me from quitting and helped me stay, you know, stay the course and finish. Um, but, you know, I think what I will say is a question that I get often from people who are thinking about that kind of research to, or, you know, biomedical research, at least transition to into SciComm is, do you miss research? And I don't, I, I don't miss the lab at all. Uh, cause I think the, the things that I always loved about being a researcher, you know, like the the creativity the answering questions the kind of that puzzle quality of of research i get that in in science communication i'm just like trying to solve different problems um and you know i still get that intellectual stimulation of like oh this is really cool or this this new thing um and so that I don't know if, yeah, I don't know that I answered your question, but that's my I mean, answer. <laughs> I'm not entirely certain what my question was, but you know, it's based on what I'm seeing a lot from people who are moving from an yeah. academic mindset yeah, out of an academic. Is that, is that sort of like, um, I don't want to say career path, but is that trajectory common among the mindset in Puerto Rico? Like you go from PhD to postdoc to professor or is there a little bit more accepted options rather than what the ivory tower is all about mm, i don't know if it's different in puerto rico i mean think generally in academia that's the expected mm -hmm. pathway right like i mean academia that is for the most part it's still built for that for training faculty yep. uh you know i think there has been in the past you know few decades there's been a recognition like oh well this is not we we need to be thinking about this differently like you know we're thinking it's not just about training faculty but it's really about training people how to do research how to do inquiry you know there's uh now there are a lot more people thinking about how a PhD gives you a suite of, of skills that can be applicable in many different spaces. Um, but it's still, you know, academia is a behemoth of like status quo. Like it loves the status quo. It doesn't want to change. Um, and so I don't know if it's more common or uncommon in Puerto Rico relative to the way that academia generally works. What I'll say is like in Puerto Rico, it, there are less options, mm. um, you know, in terms of like, I remember I thought the main option for me was becoming a professor, you know, Puerto Rico, there's a strong manufacturing industry and, uh, like pharmaceutical and medical devices. And so that was always an option, but it's in Puerto Rico, it's mostly manufacturing is not really research and development. And so that was an option, but that was a, a more limited option. Um, but I, you know, there are things like policy, for example, as a career, 
is not really an option in Puerto Rico unless you can create something because, you know, scientists don't really have a presence in policy circles. I mean, I don't think there are enough scientists in policy and politics in, in the U.S., but in Puerto Rico is basically like non-existent. You know, it's something that's kind of coming up. Same thing in like science communication and engagement. There are not that many opportunities. There's a lot more now, um, but just generally there are less options. And so I think by default, yeah, that's the thing that you think you can do. I mean, it's like, if you want to study biology, you know, you, you're pressed into medicine. Like mm. that was, I thought that was the option I had. And it wasn't until I did a, a summer research program that I was like, oh, I, I actually never had liked hospitals. So good. I'm good. <laughs> that I've realized like research is an option because going into medicine wasn't probably what I needed to do. It's interesting how many people, students I encounter um, who don't, know what the other options are like you said right not not only in puerto rico but but here right in, yeah. in mm -hmm. the continental us like i i give talks on science communication for undergraduate courses and and every time i do that students come up to me and say oh this is really a thing that one can do right and yeah. and then there's a second layer because i do research <laughs> it's oh there's research on this thing that one can mm -hmm. do mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so it's always still surprising. I was, yeah, me. I was, I was really thinking about that because I feel like there's, um, I, so one of the things that I, that I thought about your path, the way you described it is, um, is like, you were basically trying to put the pieces of yourself together into a career that you felt was, was fulfilling, but you didn't. And, mm -hmm. and this is the common thread, I think, that Sarah's talking about is that you didn't know that these things existed, right? You didn't know what the options were to put those pieces together. And I think yeah. I see that as as a, a problem in academia. And I think it's I think it's um kind of more widely recognized now. I know NIH has some programs mm -hmm. for education, uh, for graduate programs, you know, they're tr they're trying to encourage the alternate um, what is it, alternate careers, right? And it's funny mm -hmm. because it's like. Yeah. Just saying, well, that's just saying alternate faculty career is the yeah. alternative right. career. Yeah. Most people don't become faculty. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, that's a good point. It's like it's like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle, but you have to go find the pieces. You can't even find the corners. You don't even, you don't know, even right. know what the right. puzzle mm -hmm. looks you don't like. Know what the right. puzzle looks like. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Monica, yeah. one of the things that I've seen that you and the groups that you work with do is training for graduate mm -hmm. students. How do these, uh, what are being referred to erroneously as alternative pathways, fit into that training? Well, so the way that we think about it, so there's, I, in my work, I do different types of training, but I'll, I'll speak about specific example. I help lead a program called the Yale Ciencia Academy. And this is an NIH National Institute of Health. Uh, Thank you. Yes. Program. Uh, I, yeah, I try to be aware of acronyms. Um, so it's an NIH funded program for PhD students in biomedical and health sciences. Um, and it's a program we've, we're going into our seventh year. Um, and so 
we had a first iteration was basically like the first five years of the grant um, that was really focused on on anything the students would want to do. And because of changing NIH criteria, now we're really focusing on like the PhD to postdoc transition, Mm -hmm. which is a much more kind of like research academic focused transition. But even so, the way that we've always thought about this program is how do we give students the tools they need to succeed in whatever it is that they want to do. Um, and, and so that's usually how I think about all of the types of trainings that I do. Um, like, I don't want to give people a protocol or a recipe. I want to give people like, you know, life skills, uh, a toolbox that they can say like, all right, so I have these tools that are broadly applicable, but depending on what I want to do, I get to decide, do I, do I need a hammer or do I need a saw? You know, Um, and so, for example, with this program, the program has always had these kind of key pillars um, mentoring, you know, when you're a scientist, that is one of the main ways you learn the craft of doing science or doing research. It's not just even science. It's like research, being an academic. It's something that you don't learn from a book. You learn from other people, either directly or indirectly. Um, and so mentoring relationships are really important for succeeding in, in research and in academia. And if you want to have good mentoring relationships, you need to have tools to like keep those relationships and know how to cultivate those relationships. There's a lot of tox- uh, uh, toxicity, I guess, like toxic people and toxic relationships in academia. Um, and so one of the things that we do is we focus on underscoring first, like you know, good mentoring is not that abusive relationship you have with your PI. Uh, we see a lot of this, a lot of students that are in, I mean, frankly, abusive relationships with their PIs um, or their advisors. And they think like, well, they're my mentor. They're not. Newsflash. If they don't care about you, if they don't treat you well, they don't deserve to be called a mentor. Um, and so one of the things that we do is we give, and there is research on like mentoring and, you know, how to have like do culturally responsive mentoring, take into account different backgrounds into mentoring. So we take all of that and we train students and we support students in building those good mentoring relationships or healthy mentoring relationships and getting the different kinds of supports that you do need to have, because that's another thing that I know myself and many others experience that I thought my advisor was a one all be all mentor. Like he needed to help me with everything. And it's like, you need to have multiple mentors for different things. Um, and so we're, you know, we're kind of giving our students all these mentoring skills. Uh, communication is another pillar of, of this program. It's a program that is, uh, it focuses on recruiting students students from underrepresented or marginalized backgrounds. Um, Can we go back to and, the mentoring for one second? Yeah. I just think that's sure, so yeah. fascinating and so interesting because uh, as as faculty, I, that is the one thing nobody taught me to do. Nobody taught me how to mentor, right? Nobody taught me mm-hmm. how to manage yeah, no a kidding. research team. Yeah, nobody taught me yeah. how to do budgets, but <laughs> never mind. Um, yeah. But mentoring is so important, right? And I think it's so great that you're training students who will be future faculty about exactly. what you want as a as a mentee, like what you want from a mentor, so that when they become mentors, mm-hmm. right, they can implement that for their students. 
Yeah. And, yeah. And, and we see this, that that's one of the reasons why we see this program, the Yale Ciencia Academy. Yeah, sure. Like we are giving individual students these skills and, you know, I, I struggle. One of the things that I struggle a lot with is like fixing, you know, this idea of like fixing the individual versus fixing mm. the system. You know, there are a lot of programs that are focused on like the individual. It's like you, you need to fix the system. But what we, the way we think about it is we're giving individuals the tools they need to more effectively navigate a broken system. But then we're really training them, as you said, to be those agents of change when they stay in the system. You know, many of them want to stay in academia. And so we're giving them the tools to be like, once, once you get to a position of power um, and you become faculty, these are the ways that you can do differently. Um, and then you, you change the system system. Right. Um, and so that is, that's absolutely our approach. And, you know, we, besides mentoring, we're really focusing on communication. Uh, the students that we attract are really interested in communication, like public, quote mm. unquote, public communication um, and, and engagement. And so we're giving them tools to do that, like to do effective public engagement. We're really focusing now on public engagement, try to get them, although they're not, many of them are like, ooh, science communication research is a thing. We're really bringing in that mm -hmm. research and be like death to the deficit model. Like <laughs> we're really trying to get them to be like public engagement. Like this is what you need to be thinking about. Um, but we're also teaching them about how to effectively communicate their research. You know, if you want to stay in academia, you need to be able to communicate your research effectively to different audiences. Um, but and also interpersonal communication, which is important for many different things. Um, and then the final pillar of this program has always been planning, right? Career planning, figuring out what are your goals, how do you get them, mm -hmm. doing that kind of backwards mm -hmm. design of what's the thing that you want to do? And then how do you get there? Um, because a lot of us, you know, I certainly enter research because people told me like, you're good doing research. And so if you're good at doing research, you should do a PhD. But I never had a goal of like, what exactly do I want to do with this PhD? Um, and so we're giving them these career planning uh, skills that are going to help them along the way in like any professional transition that they do. And so although right now in this current iteration, the program is focused on that PhD to postdoc transition, which, as I said, is is kind of more focused on that staying on that academic and research path. We're not telling students you need to go do a postdoc. You know, we're like, here are these tools. And the focus of this program is if you want to explore doing that PhD to postdoc transition. However, if you don't, that's great. We can support you with that, too. We have we know a lot of people. We can connect you with mentors and programs and other opportunities. Um, and so we're really focusing on on that capacity building, skills building, giving them those tools and not saying this is what you should do or that's, shouldn't do. That's so incredible. That's really great. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, too, is that when I was a graduate student, I would have loved something like this. Um, mm -hmm. yes. but, uh, yeah, that's a, a lot of the motivation of the things that yeah. we do is like, what do I wish I, I had when I was a grad student? I, I didn't I'm have. Thinking about, I I'm build. thinking about my like the tool set that I had as a graduate student for transition to postdoc. Um, 
Uh, number wait, one. Wait, before we, oh. we need to probably say what a postdoc oh, is because yeah. I'm realizing that all four That's of us have some true, academic right. background and not our listeners, right? Sure. And in, in communication, the postdoc is becoming much more common, but it's pretty new, oh, okay. actually. Uh, we, oh, interesting. Like, yeah. you know, I got my PhD in 2014 and went straight into a faculty position, got it. which was got like, it. oh, today you're a grad student. Tomorrow you're a faculty member. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, which is, yeah. yeah. So who wants to define what a postdoc oh is? Um, I, I see it as <laughs> seriously first and then all the jokes. Right, okay. Right. I feel like it's an internship. It's like, you've got your PhD, you've got your credentials, and now you need to go and do some on the job training. Um, and yeah. uh, it's a time for you to, uh, you to demonstrate your independence from your original, um, PhD lab and um, and in a way from your postdoc uh, lab as well. So you can mm-hmm. bring skills mm-hmm. that you had from your PhD, you can learn new skills, and then it's a way that jobs, uh, academic jobs especially, um, evaluate how independent you're likely to be. It's basically to, sh- to, to connect those dots from, go ahead, Sarah. Oh, so I just have a question. So you just said, wait, postdoc is short for postdoctoral researcher, but you said mm-hmm. like independence from your postdoc lab as well, but yep. presumably you're hired to do a project. So you're, you're doing a project for that lab. Ironic, I, I clearly it? did not postdoc. Yes. <laughs> Jason, you want to take this or you want me to take this? Uh, how about you take it, Patrick? Cause it's, it's, I mean, <laughs> I can give a shot, but. I didn't do a postdoc, yeah. so I can only give you a definition from like what I've heard. So <laughs> I, I had a sort of an interesting route. I did a PhD in microbiology in Hawaii, same place where Sarah was. Woot woot. Um, and then I did a postdoc in a pharmaceutical sciences department as a medicinal chemistry postdoctoral scholar, which is a ridiculously complex oh. title. And then I had a tenure track faculty appointment and then another tenure track faculty appointment. So the way that it was structured for us and the way that I like to think about it is it is the end stage research apprenticeship. (laughs) Your goal is to gain additional skills, hone the ones you already have, but then use the time and resources available to create your own path to independence. Mm. So where Mm -hmm. Jason pointed out that you might be creating a new research program. So the goal is that you need to do what your PI wants, but you also need to get good at writing and budgets, for example, Sarah, and, you know, doing grants and conceptualizing research. And then in many cases, especially in some of the hands-on sciences um, at the bench, you need to get some preliminary data such that you can use that to transition into a new mode. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the paths that some of the NIH, the National Institute of Health um, Research Awards are for, particularly the K99 R001. K99 mm-hmm. is an award for the end of your postdoc that supports you, R0, R01, R001, it's one of the two. R00. There you go, thank you. Um, that supports yeah. you in the beginning of a tenure track uh, professorship. So mm-hmm. that's sort of how I see it. You know, Jason, Monica, Sarah, feel free to disagree with me about that. I, but that's kind of I what mean, my experience I'm not going to disagree. I'm just going to observe that, like, all those things were things I had to learn I, in, so, like, my first three years as a faculty member and yeah. then do, like, a formal So, so my, my, I was going to, so to complete my, my thought, um, my toolkit for, um, for skills as a postdoc were that I needed, I knew that I needed to do a postdoc. That was my, that was the extent of my <laughs> toolkit was that 
You're, you'll do a postdoc. Yeah. Go. Yeah. I mean, and like for, again, for, for biomedical sciences, a postdoc is a requirement. Mm. Uh, it, it's nearly impossible to get a faculty position if you don't do a postdoc. Um, and so like Jason's mentioning, for many people who are doing PhDs in, again, in biomedical sciences, I'll speak from my experience, um, they know that they have to do a postdoc and they think, well, that's just what I need to do. But there's often very little guidance of like, there are different types of postdocs and you should really, yes, you should, if you want to go into research, you need to do a postdoc, but you need to have clarity of goals of what is it that you want to accomplish in that postdoc? Where is it that you need to go to accomplish those goals? Not all postdocs are created equal. True. Um, and, and it's a, it's a really, particularly for people from historically marginalized uh backgrounds like that transition from PhD to postdoc and then from postdoc to faculty, those are huge attrition points where yeah. a lot of people leave for different reasons. Some people are like, I don't want to do a postdoc. I want to do, I don't want to do academia, but there's a lot of attrition too, because the path is not clear. There's not a lot of support for people doing those transitions. And so this program wants to give people the tools so that they can make that transition effectively. Yeah. And it, it- it sounds so stressful because uh, <laughs> yeah, because you're because you're, you're finishing a PhD yeah. and you're like defending and then you're like, oh, and I need to right. land a postdoc right. and I need and to know what I need to do yeah, and I need to know what my research program is going to be for the next, mm-hmm. you know, five years or, or however, like the next decade yeah. or at least the general d- the, d- the direction of what you want to do, you know, like especially if you know some people switch fields. Right. Um. Some people stay in similar fields, but, you know, like in a postdoc, you need to learn new skills. Um, Even if you stay in like generally the same research area, you need to do something that you can't just continue doing exactly what you were doing during the PhD. So, yes, it is a stressful uh, transition. Um, There's also a lot of systemic issues with being a postdoc that we don't need to go into. Um, But. But yeah, that's um, that's kind of the focus of of the Yale Science Academy and and why we've decided to kind of uh, focus on on that transition and really giving people tools. Again, like we think of them as life skills because the 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 tools, the skills, the network. Something else that's really important about this program it's it's really community focused. Mm. So we it's a cohort based program, and so we have a group of. At this point, we have 16 students who are going through the program together. And so there's an element of we're we're building a community of learning and support um, because these students are going through similar experiences together. Um, Many of them are the only one with their identities or one of the few with their identities. And, and, you know, there's there's a lot of feelings of isolation. Um, I mean, doing a Ph.D. can be really isolating generally. Um, And so we are building this community of support, this community of learning between the students, and then we're connecting them with advisors and mentors and role models who can also support them. You know, the students can learn from the experiences of these people, but there's also real mentor relationships that are uh, mentoring relationships that are established through this program. So in the way that you've just described that, it sounds sort of loosely the way that Aquinos Cuidamos is put together, 
where you have sort of a, a community level and you have individual people within the community who are going out and being part of this COVID response. And there's a set of tools that are available and useful that can then be used for dissemination of information, misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that I thought was really powerful about that and which you won awards for, yay, yay. was to create this toolkit, this box, mm-hmm. I mean, as such, right, that could then be used by various people within the community to bolster this initiative, which is awesome. I was wondering if with what you described about mentorship and giving people tools and the transition between a PhD and postdoc, if a similar toolbox approach is being generated, has been generated, is going to be something that students can then use for mentoring in the future, et cetera. For, you mean for the Yale CMS Academy? Yeah, sure. Um, we're not necessarily generating a toolbox that they can, I mean, we're giving them the tools, but we're not kind of generating a toolbox that anyone can use. What I will say is like one of the things that we're doing and, you know, and we should go and explain like what Aquinas Pilamos yes. is and all that stuff. Uh, I'm sure mine about was, your award. Yeah. I'm sure mine was cursory uh, and incomplete. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one of the things that we are doing is so for, for the Yeltsin's Academy, you know, it's a year long program and students are going through like different activities and, and um, programmatic elements. But one of the things that we do is we have these workshops that are really aligned with the, the core pillars of the program, mentoring, communication, career planning. So we have these workshops that the students go through, but one new thing we started doing in this new phase of the program is we're turning those workshops into video video courses, essentially. Um, And so Ciencia Puerto Rico has actually partnered with the Science Communication Lab and like one of the strengths of the Science Communication Lab, uh, again, formerly known as iBiology, is is video production. Um, And we've done like professional development courses for a number of years now. And so we've partner, like the two organizations have partnered to create these video courses. And so, for example, we created a course that's all about you know, we, we called it the strategic postdoc. And so, you know, so you're thinking about doing a postdoc. What are the things that you should do from like starting that planning, um, you know, thinking about what is it that you want to do? What is it that you need um, to kind of the mechanics of how do you find a postdoc? How do you scout labs? How do you do the interviews? So we have an entire course on that that is free. So I guess that is sort of the toolbox that's coming out of this program. So we're not just training this group of 16 people who are going through the year of the Yeltsin's Academy, but these courses are actually available for anyone who who wants to do this. So we're really making these um uh, available to anyone and the course that we're producing right now is actually on public engagement so that's a great a great segue because i have a i, I have a general kind of fundamental question about what what community engagement in science means to you and specifically with mm. the cultural um cultural revel- relevance i think is an important part i read those words and it and to me, it puts stuff in my head of like, oh, I know what she's talking about, but I'm not sure that I do. And I'd be interested to hear like what your kind of, um, you know, 
uh, elevator uh, summary of, of that, if that's possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way that I think about community engagement in science in a culturally relevant manner. I mean, first of all, I think all community engagement should be culturally relevant because newsflash, we all have culture, uh, you know, in, in the US, uh, I think when people think about culture, they think about non-white culture or, you know, like distinct, like racial, ethnic uh, cultures or like people from other countries, but there is a thing as like there is such a thing as white culture. It's just it's just the dominant culture, and you know it's normal, quote unquote, the normal thing. I think it currently um, involves those Stanley mugs. <laughs> you guys seen those? Anyone? I just no. found this out. No. Like, no. Okay, what are the yeah, Stanley, those really, Stanley like giant mugs? Like, apparently uh, this is a big popular thing. Okay, sorry, I'm not gonna derail this. I feel, like, it's, like, I feel like it's really well like laid out within the book. Stuff white people like. <laughs> I, I need to, I'm gonna need to I'm, Google yeah, this I'm gonna have to to I'm share this to link Google later. It. I'm not putting that in the show notes because yeah. I refuse to push this like stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, so like you know, I'd say that like everyone needs to be thinking about culture in in communication and, and community engagement. Um, but the way that I think about it, it it's fundamentally it's a relationship. Um, you know, engagement is is a relationship. Um, between, I mean, in my case, me as a scientist and the communicator and, and the people that I am communicating with. Um, and so it's it's a relationship where I am taking into account the, the realities, the identities of the people I'm partnering with, as well as my own, um, because all of those influence how we see the world and how we move through the world. Um, and how we do things. Um, it's, it's a relationship where I am, you know, it's based on, on respect um, and where I am learning from people. Like I'm not assuming um, that I know more than anyone. I'm assuming that we have different experiences and that gives us different perspectives and, and information. Um and so that's to me, that's what what community engagement is. It's really about uh, a, a partnership. Um, and so the way that, you know, kind of to go into into Aquí Nos Cuidamos. So Aquí Nos Cuidamos is a project that I've been leading for the past almost two years now. Um, and Aquí Nos Cuidamos loosely translates to here we take care of each other. Um, and it's been uh, really a, a community engagement program focused on promoting COVID-19 prevention and mental health amongst uh, marginalized and vulnerable communities in Puerto Rico. Um, and, and the project has had really two key components. One is a the creation of a multimedia toolkit that anyone can use to promote COVID prevention, uh, vaccination and, and mental health. Um, and then there's a community engagement program where we've really been working with different communities in Puerto Rico um, to, to build their capacity and, and, and their agency to, to be able to then, you know, promote prevention and, and men, COVID prevention and mental health. Um, and this <clears throat> is the project that you won an award with recently, right? It's the breakthrough of the year in science engagement? The, the, 
Yeah, the project won an award. Like this is certainly I was the I was the person who was there to receive the the award, but it, it, this is certainly not a an award that belongs to me. It's an award that belongs to to the team of people, uh, to my team that you know has been working tirelessly to to build this this program, and certainly belongs to our community partners because one of the things that I think indirectly has been a really beautiful thing that come out of, of Aquinos Cuidamos has been that we're we're really we're really trying to um, to break with these traditional notions of who is a science expert and who has science expertise and this idea of like science literacy and who has it and who doesn't and who defines it um, because we've been working with with different community groups, grassroots community groups, uh, nonprofit organization, but individuals as well that, I mean, they have such incredible local community-based and ancestral science knowledge that, you know, academia probably wouldn't consider it science. Even them, they wouldn't call it science, but fundamentally, it is. Uh, it is science. They take a systematic approach to observing the world and, and gathering information. And I mean, that's fundamentally what science is, right? Um, and so this project, um, you know, kind of going back to your earlier question, I think there are there are common threads in in a lot of my work and i would say in a lot of the work that ciencia puerto rico does where it's you know putting science in service of different communities in puerto rico is really central to what we do but there's also uh there's always a capacity building component by training you know we do different trainings of different audiences like we train students we train and and both like k-12 students and graduate undergraduate students we train teachers and faculty uh, we are training community leaders we're training professionals in other areas so there's there's always a capacity building element mm -hmm. uh, to what we do because you know we you know we we talk about empowerment but it's also more than empowerment is is kind of facilitating that people can claim their power, um, particularly when it comes to like any marginalized groups, they, they have power. They just haven't been allowed to exert that power. They haven't been given the platform or a microphone to, you know, to exert that power, but they have power. Um, and so, you know, we, we try to remove those barriers and, and allow them to really step into their power. Um, there is always an element of, of service of community, you know, largely because Ciencia Puerto Rico itself is a community. We are a community of people interested in science and Puerto Rico. Um, and so that community of folks is our biggest asset. We, we kind of tap into the collective knowledge of that network to do everything that we do. Um, and so Aquinos Cuidamos certainly, you know, draws on all of this. And, and of course there is the, the cultural relevance uh, aspect, which has also always been central to, to what we do, um, connecting science with people's culture identities and, and, and their realities is, is central to everything that we do. And it's, it's really at the core of, of Aquinos Cuidamos. That's perfect. Actually, I was gonna ask for a definition, which you just gave of culture 
culturally resonant or relevant science communication. Another term mm-hmm. that we hear a lot uh, in science communication circles, I hear, I say we, but really it's like those of us in this small little circle of science communication, right? Research, mm-hmm. training, practice is inclusive science communication. Um, yeah. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about what that is? And then I have one selfish question about researchers and what we can we can do to that end. And with Sarah, yes. I also have a question regarding that. But Sarah, you totally go first and I'll jump on after. Yeah, I mean, uh, how do you what do you think of as inclusive science communication and how sort of do you define that? Yeah. Um, well, so first, before I, uh, I answer that question, I'm going to say there is a people should Google and you should probably link to the show notes. Um, inclusive Um, so this is an initiative out of the Metcalf Institute at the university of Rhode Island. Um, it's exists, I think since 2007, 2018. Um, and so it's, it, this, initiative has really done a lot of work um, to understand like what what does inclusive science communication mean? Um, what does it look like? Um, but you know, I think for me, inclusive science communication, it means like, I mean, just broadly, it's like it's that not white, not Western, not male centered science communication. <laughs> um, but you know, it really means like it's it's deconstructing these assumptions that we have of like the ways that science communication is done. So we're, we're bringing in different perspectives, different languages, different abilities. Um, And so inclusive science communication can mean like, you know, are you only communicating science in English and who's excluded because of that? Or are you not having, um, you know, are you including uh, sign language interpreters in, in your videos? Um, Because, you know, this is something that I thought for a long time that it was enough to include captions and subtitles because, you know, like it's great. Like people can read and, and if even if you're, you know, if you're a deaf or hard of hearing person, you can read the captions. But bonus, if you're a non native English speakers, but you can read English, it's easier. Like, I know it's easier for me to understand things when I can read the captions, even if I can't understand the spoken words. But it's I was wrong. Um, you know, not all deaf people have the uh, reading proficiency to read captions. So interpreters is are the best way to make content accessible and inclusive of deaf people. Um, I also learned this that is some- interpreters mm-hmm. uh, and, and American Sign Language and maybe sign language in general is very um, emotive and it has to do it with is. seeing and yeah. vis- being able yes. to see uh, the interpreter's yes. face. And I, so, I face. love yeah. videos of interpreters at rap concerts. It is amazing. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, to what Sarah's saying, like just having an interpreter that's like, you know, really tiny in the corner of a phone screen, that's not accessible because if Mm -hmm. I, if I can't see, you know, or if the deaf person can't see the interpreter's face and their entire body, then it's not 
you know, it's not good. You know, they're, they're not getting the, the full message. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, it's really inclusive science communication is about centering equity. It's about centering intersectionality. So taking into account people's multiple identities and life experiences. Um, it's about taking into account um historical and current inequities and inequalities that have been perpetuated by the way that, you know, we have communicated science um, so that, you know, science can truly be accessible for everyone. Um, and so that everyone, and in the case of science communication, science communication can truly be accessible for, for everyone. Um, and, and that, you know, it can be moving forward. It can be more just so I think you've answered maybe my second question about what can practitioners or researchers do to within the framework of inclusive science communication, right? With the mindset, it seems to me to be a little bit of a mindset that, um, like culturally resonant communication, the kind of work that you do falls within mm -hmm. them. It's like one of the tools, right? To, to promote that kind of mindset. So mm -hmm. I can see that as something practitioners can do. On the researcher side, I sort of think to some extent, even like holding this idea of inclusive science communication, you know, while you are doing the research is important, right? Because I, I mm -hmm. what I hear is it's kind of intangible. There are things you cannot measure. As a researcher, I am looking for things to measure, but at least if I am thinking about it, if I am aware, if I have this in the back of my mind, I will do better science, right? I will yeah. do more equitable science. Hopefully I will do, mm -hmm. you know, more just science. For sure. For sure. And I, you know, something that I've been thinking a lot about is kind of challenging this idea of like science literacy, right? Like, you know, there are ways in which science literacy is measured, like, you know, with tests and all sorts of things. It's like, how much science knowledge do people have? But who's defining what that means? Like, you know, are you taking into account the, the systemic inequalities of, you know, standardized, test, standardized testing, which, you know, there are global tests that measure literacy uh, in different countries. And those are done by standardized tests. Like, you know, and there's plenty of evidence that standardized tests are uh, not great and they perpetuate inequalities and inequities. Um, and so it's about thinking of what are what are the I mean, researchers that we do this all the time. I mean, I'm not a science communication researcher, but I was trained as a researcher. That's what you do. You question assumptions. And so inclusive science communication means that you're questioning your assumptions of like, you know, how you're measuring certain things. And are you perpetuating um, certain inequalities uh, or are you perpetuating certain stereotypes uh with the way that you're measuring things or with the way that you're you're doing um, your research, with the questions that you're asking, with who is asking the questions, like who is who's leading the process of, of research. You know, there's a difference between someone coming into a community and saying, I want to do this research with you because I it's a question that I have and you so happen to be the ideal subject or place for me to do this research. Um, a more inclusive way to think about that would be to say, you know, 
I go to a place, go to a community and say, like, I have, you know, I have this research question and I'm really interested in partnering with you. Is that a research question you're something you are interested in? Or are there research questions you think we should be asking? Like, are there needs and priorities and just questions that you have? Um and how do I partner with you to to do that, to answer that kind of question, to, you know, to respect and integrate how you live or how you know things? Um, so it, it, it really is about a, a fundamental shift, as, as you said, of, of a mindset um, of how we approach um science communication and, and science communication research. And I think we have, sorry, a very fine and kind of nuanced line to walk here in some senses, mm-hmm. right? Because I think part of me is like, well, as a researcher, I want some measurable things. And yeah, the question of who is measuring uh, is an important one, but I also don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we have uh, data and, you know, something tangible in a that is um considerate right that that considers all these perspectives i don't know what i'm saying i'm gonna let patrick ask his question no well but (laughs) i I think it's challenging right like because you're i mean it's whenever i think whenever you're trying to change a system or like shift a mindset there's always that tension between well the way we have been doing things is broken or it's maybe not ideal but then there's a you know kind of the incremental change versus like let's just set everything on fire kind of approach right um and so i think there is something to be said about, well, does it mean that we just have to like do away with like all of the ways we've collected data and we've measured things because those have, you know, you, I think we can safely assume those have been shaped by a Western predominantly white, predominantly male perspective um, and have been exclusive, you know, exclusionary in, in, in probably many ways. Um, but then it's like, well, you know, does that mean like we just don't measure anything and that we're just going to throw, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's, that's hard, right? There's, there's tension, but I think for starters, we need to start, you know, we need to begin asking those questions, right? Like we need to begin mm-hmm. asking the questions of like, is the way that we have been doing things the right way? Like as defined by whom, who has it served, who hasn't it served? Um, but, but it, there is certainly tension. I think, you know, I'm the kind of person who I, I try to be really strategic about these things. And sometimes I think the way to create change is by like getting into the system and just hacking it. Um, and then sometimes it, it is very fair to just like set things on fire. Um, but I, I don't think like either or is is the right approach. I think, you know, you kind of have to navigate um, these these things. But I think if by having this like framework of like what is inclusive science communication? And again, I would encourage people to go to inclusive psychom.org. Like there are um, this group of people they've done uh landscape analysis like they've really looked at and they there's a framework of like what is what what is inclusive science communication what are the key characteristics of it It, it, so i think it is important that we have a framework so that they we can start kind of moving the needle uh, and moving the field towards inclusion yeah and i really appreciate the 
the and right of all of this versus the one or the other because i think about like the yale ciencia um program it kind of mm-hmm. does that right it trains people who yeah. are going to be in a system that is not ideal yeah you know but even yeah. even things that are not ideal tend to have some value right in some cases and so yeah i really like the nuance and kind of detailed conversation that one can have around this because it i think that mm-hmm. is something that we've been missing too yeah. right around these conversations yeah. for sure for sure yeah i think i mean there there i think we can't we need to be radical and 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 we can't be complacent mm-hmm. in saying like well you know the system it's hard to change it so we're just gonna right. take like little changes yeah like we need to be radical at least in our perspective suit of this change absolutely needs to happen. Um, but I think we need also to be really strategic um, and realistic about how that change needs to happen. You, you know, again, I think there's going to be instances where you're going to say, like, we need to set this thing on fire and we need to burn that bridge and we need to live with the consequences of burning that bridge. And then there are times where we can't do that. That can't be the right approach because, you know, we need to work there's that kind of dichotomy of like you want to change the broken system but we you need to work within the broken system right um yeah so i mean and strategic i think is a a good good description of that sorry patrick i keep cutting off your question not at all this is exactly i think i feel like this is the point right is to foster this sort of interaction and i think monica you definitely did something along the lines of what you just described when you did uh, the background to breakthrough on Dr. Esteban Bouchard, right? You took the New York mm-hmm. Times article and you reframed it in- It was a BuzzFeed article, article. But, Sorry, you know, apologies, yes. apologies. Same, same. You know? yeah, and, same, same. <laughs> and I feel like that's, that's really where my question is going because looking at, you know, looking at that lab's work, they're looking at racial minority responses to asthma and asthma drugs and mm-hmm. treatments and such like that. And so Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that in relation to what you talk about, um, about, you know, working with in the answer that you just or the the how you just described it of going to the community and asking what questions, you know, I have a question. Is this something you're interested in? Would you want to work rather rather than taking the colonist viewpoint, walk in and say, I have a question. I'm going to study you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I thought that that was really interesting. And it made me think of some of the stuff that Jason has a background in, which is a lot of computational biology. And so you Mm -hmm. now have these massive data sets that have been generated by 23andMe, SNP analysis, you know, all these things, right? And so now you're going to go in to some researcher in who knows where, who's never actually interacted with one of the people in this group and say, ah, yes, I now draw conclusions about this group from this data set. Mm -hmm. I mean, how... How do you even begin to deal with that? Because it, it feels like what's been communicated here, there needs to be people within the culture, the culture itself represented, input, framing. There are just yeah. so many options that don't seem to be considered when you're like, well, this is a 32% chance of, you know, BRCA1 in this population, yada, yada. Like, and it's compounded. Where do we go with that? It's compounded. I sorry to interject. It's compounded by uh, advances in machine learning and AI, which are inherently biased by the input data. So I'll let you. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just to backtrack a little bit and to give people a little bit of background. So 
Background to Breakthrough is a series of short films that I produced a few years ago as part of my work with the Science Communication Lab. And it's a, it features three scientists, Esteban Bouchard, who you just mentioned, um, Rebecca Calisi and, and Manu Prakash. But the, the idea behind the series as a whole was to really challenge common tropes and narratives about marginalized scientists and and scientists of color more broadly um, that, you know, often when you hear stories about these people, they're coming from a perspective of deficit. You know, they are from these marginalized identities and they succeeded in science in spite of the challenges and, and those identities. Um, and, and what we wanted to do was, was kind of flip those narratives to the, these identities, the culture, the life experiences of these people are precisely why they excel in research, that, that it really directly informs what they do and how they do it, right? And so the, the story of Esteban, Esteban is, he's a physician scientist at the University of California, San Francisco. He, um, researchers health disparities, particularly when it comes to asthma in uh, in minoritized groups. Um, and, and yeah, like he he really, um, you know, just the approach to his research, he's really looking at genetics and genomics and how they influence, um, you know, asthma, but particularly the health disparities that people face when getting treatment for their asthma. Um, and, and I think, you know, more broadly, what just, just brought up in like, you know, genetics or genomics research, um, it, it's, you know, people, I think in, in science in general, or like STEM, science, technology, engineer, math, more broadly, there's this fallacy of we're objective because right. we science is objective. Right. And it's like, no, it's not. Science is done by people. People have biases because we're human and you can't get rid of biases. Like, sure, science gives you certain tools to try to reduce or remove some of those biases, but you never get rid of them because you're human. It's being biased is a fundamental human condition. Um, and so what you're bringing up with like algorithms and AI and, and data, just like reducing people to numbers uh, presents a huge challenge um, that, you know, that's one of the reasons why we need to have like different perspectives, why we need to have representation um, from, say, like indigenous communities, uh, mm. like indigenous communities in the United States uh, and, and around the world more more broadly. But particularly in, in the United I'll speak from what I know a little bit about uh, in the United States, you know, like they've been abused and oppressed and erased by science for for not decades, centuries. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's been a lot of issues with them being used for research or their, their uh, you know, samples being used for research without their consent. Um, and now there are movements um, and, and programs from uh, indigenous scientists who are really thinking about da data sovereignty, you right. know, like who decides uh, who, who this data, who data belongs to and who decides what's being done with data. Um, and in this approach of, of data sovereignty in at least with indigenous communities is not just thinking about, I think it's, it's really thinking about how to correct 
historical uh, injustices because it's like, well, for a long time, we were told that, you know, this data doesn't belong to us. People can do whatever they want with it. And they're kind of reclaiming like, no, no, this is ours. Um, and we get to decide, you know, and, and, you know, basically like, screw, there's been a lot of um, arguments. It's like, well, the advancement of science is like, no, screw the advancement of science. Like there's been a lot of things that have been really wrong that have been done in the name of science, quote unquote science. Um, and so I think that's another area where we're, representation, but beyond representation, inclusion of, of people, uh, not just in like, who's, you know, who's included in clinical trials to make sure that we're looking at, um, how drugs affect different people according to, to their backgrounds. Um, but also like who is, who's, you know, who's driving the, these initiatives, who's making the decisions. It's really important that members of these communities are part of the decision-making and the, the design of, of these, these different projects and programs. Uh, because, you know, I think that often inclusion is an afterthought. It's like, we're going to design the thing. And then after the thing is designed, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, we're going to include you so that you can tell us what you think. It's like, no, no, people need to be involved in these things from the design stage, because, again, who you are, your experiences, all of that influence. And so if if these diverse perspectives are not included from the design, then there's going to it's going to be even more biased. Uh, whatever you do is going to be even more biased and lacking from the beginning. This has really been fascinating. And I feel like we moved this podcast as we often do to a point where we've opened up so many different topics and so many different questions. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think it's a good time to end this and maybe uh, we'll say postponed until or, you know, continue to be continued. Um, Monica, I, we just really want to thank you for appearing on Planet SciComm and uh, for a really interesting uh, set of discussions. And we will be linking um, some of the links that we've been talking about um, and that you've uh, brought up in uh, the show notes. So thank you very yeah, much. Thank you so much. Thank you so this, much. This was fun. And if you want to hear uh, more about Monica's work, she will be in the National Academies, the upcoming National Academies uh, Science Colloquium, the fifth one titled Reimagining Science Communication in the COVID Era and Beyond. And we will link that in the show notes too. 